Uh, well, like Gil said, my name's Wes. I am our pastor here, so I want to welcome you here. Uh, if it's your first time joining us or your millionth time joining us, thanks for being here. Those of you online, thanks for uh, checking stuff out. We have a few folks who I know are out of town today, so hello, Alex, Melissa, and most importantly, Ramon are out of town. So uh, that's good. Ramon, this will be fundamental in your development as a five-month-old or however old he is now. So uh, anyway, we are talking about how to grow as followers of Jesus. We're spending the whole summer talking about uh, what does it look like for us to be disciples of Jesus. Uh, today, uh, we, I kind of laid out for you a few weeks ago the roadmap that God often uses to help us grow as disciples of Jesus. Um, that we call that here at Crossbridge our four C's, uh, that they are kind of the four areas where God tends to grow us and challenge us and push us if we're going to grow to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, disciple is a fancy word just for apprentice. So like a good apprentice, right, we apprentice under the master. We want to be like the master, and that's the goal of discipleship, is that we would be more like uh, Jesus, that we would resemble him uh, more and more in our day-to-day -day life. And so Becca Jackson was here last week and did a great job talking about vulnerability, which was awesome. I hated every moment of that message because it was like she was reading my mail and knew exactly what I needed to hear. So if for no one else, that was good for me. Uh, but today I want to talk about uh, another part of why I think it means for us to connect in relationships where truth meets life, which is one of our four C's uh, for how we grow to be more and more like Jesus. So um, I have noticed this kind of thing, maybe you've noticed it too, is that uh, in life, uh, we don't do very well at being around people who are different than us. So um, I've shared this before. My wife is black, as you can tell. I am not. Uh, I'm white, uh, just a little bit white. And so uh, the first time we hung out at her, uh, like her mom was having like a family reunion on uh, that side of the family. And so we were all in this south suburban Chicago park and we're all hanging out. I don't think anyone that was at this park in southern Chicago that day walked by our family gathering of 100 or so people and was like, oh, I wonder if that guy's a blood relative. You know, like no one was thinking that as they went by like, oh, yeah, these guys seem like they go together, you know. And it's honestly kind of like... You know, it was, a, it was one of the experiences that I think we all have in life where you feel like, man, I'm totally the outsider and everyone knows I'm the outsider right now. You know, some of us have those experiences, whether it's at, at work or, you know, they, you can relate to, you know, dating or something like that, being with someone. Um, and so I've noticed when I feel like the outsider and when I feel like I don't fit in and when I feel like I'm unlike the people around me, that kind of three things happen. There's a process of three things that go on if I'm not careful about it, okay? The first thing that often happens is that um, I, I start to feel fear, okay? I don't know why this is, but we as humans, whenever we are around people that we feel unlike, whether that's unlike racially or kind of like our approach to life or religiously or like socioeconomically or educate, whatever, like we tend to fear things and people that are different than us. And so like all of a sudden I kind of have that fear of like, am I going to fit in? Am I going to be accepted? Am I going to be embarrassed? Am I going to be, you know, are they going to point and laugh and make, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, when we go like, uh, I led a mission trip to Atlanta like several years ago now with the previous church I served at. And it was like a really great church in Atlanta. I was familiar with it. I knew they were going to do a good job and it wasn't going to be 
one of those churches where it's like, you're new, stand up, tell us every detail about your life right now, you know, and like totally embarrass you, no laughs, because some of you have probably been to that church before, apparently, and, uh, and so I knew it was going to be good, I'm walking in, and like the people, they had like greeters out in the parking lot, and they're like, yeah, hey, how you doing? And I felt, I like reacted to them kind of like when a salesman comes to your door and you're like, I'm not interested, you know. And I'm like a pastor. I could be like, hey guys, don't worry, I'm a professional. Like, don't worry about greeting me. I got, you know, I'm a professional Christian since, you know, 20, 2010 or whatever, you know. Like, I got this. Don't worry about it. And uh, it, like, I, again, when we feel like the outsider, even if it's like the slightest thing where it's like, I'm going to a church, I should not feel weird or, uh, right? Like, we still feel that fear. And then that fear often leads to kind of a second thing that happens inside of us that, that we begin to focus exclusively on the differences, right? When I'm around people who are unlike me, I don't focus on what are surely the hundred things that I have in common with them. I focus on the one or two things that are different, right? I focus on oh, they went to that school and I didn't. Oh, they have this, this, they're part of this political party and I'm not. Oh, their skin is this color and mine isn't. Or, you know, like whatever it is, right? And the difference between us becomes like the sum and the whole of the relationship, right? And then out of that, a third thing happens, which is we either power up or we power down, okay? We power up or we power down. So when I think of power up, when I was thinking of that this week, here's kind of the first thing I thought of. I have a picture I believe we'll show um, here. So some of you might remember this picture. This was from early on in the COVID pandemic. Like a bunch of people were angry about like, you know, mask mandates and stuff in Michigan. And so they stormed the state house. This is a guy powering up right here, right? He doesn't look like he's exactly interested in having like, let's have a thorough reason discussion right now, you know, right? This is, a, this is what we do when we power up, right? We focus on the differences. I focus on what I don't like about you. I'm going to yell and kick and scream and do whatever it is I have to do, maybe externally like this guy or just on the inside, right? I kind of power up, right? I kind of put my chest out, you know, and I kind of feel that way. Or we do the opposite of that. We power down, right? We decide that, okay, I'm just going to kind of, I'm just going to kind of retreat into the background. I'm going to try not to be noticed. I'm going to downplay everything different, everything unique, everything kind of God-given about me, just so I can like blend in and no one notices. And then when I'm out of this situation, I'm going to try to never engage or be a part of this or do do this ever again, right? You ever notice how we kind of do that, okay? And so we either kind of do that and we power down and either way, whether you power up or power down at the end of kind of your being around people unlike you, neither one is really a recipe for us walking in the relationships that Jesus desires for us to have with others. Um, Jesus had this weird thing he did where people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. And conversely, the people who were the most like Jesus were the people who were always in conflict with Jesus. Like the people where Jesus probably shared like 95% of their lifestyle, theology, religious beliefs, experiences, all that, right? They were the people that were like, Jesus just was like, come on, guys, what are we doing here, right? He was always arguing and fighting with them, okay? Here's kind of the reality in which we live that I've noticed. If you're unlike me, you are unliked by me, right? Have you ever noticed that? Like, we don't have a lot of places in our world right now where people who are 
unlike one another are kind of crossing the aisle to demonstrate, I like you, I love you, I care about you, you're my person, right? Democrats and Republicans, right, don't get along, right? Heck, Republicans are Republicans, and Democrats and Democrats don't even get along, right? Um, we could talk about this with race. We could talk about this with sexual orientation or gender identity. We could talk about this with income level. We could talk about this with, do you live on the East Coast or do you live in a flyover state? You know, and like all these kind of different things. But the reality is, what we do as humankind is we figure out, hey, when people are unlike me, you become unliked by me. And this is really noticeable right now because we have social media and we have things that kind of amplify this fact about us. But guys, this is not a new thing. This has been going on for, you know, I don't know, about thousands of years now, you know, like this is not a new fact. But the reality is when you are unlike me, we're only a hop, skip, and a jump away from you being unliked by me. But Jesus didn't do that. I think Jesus didn't do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus understood as the son of God, when he came into contact with someone, when he was eyeball to eyeball with someone, he knew he was looking at someone created in God's image. And Jesus, because he is the son of God, was probably able to be like, oh yeah, Jim, I remember creating you, you know, or whatever it is, right? Like, like he could literally kind of see the image of God in us, right? Every single one of us in this room, every single one of you watching online, everyone who will be born, everyone who has been born, all of us are created in the image of God, which doesn't mean we're like the full picture of God, but there are pieces about me that uniquely reflect God's creative glory, that kind of uniquely reflect part of him to the world. There are pieces about you that cre created by God that reflect his glory into the world. And Jesus would look and he would see that and he would, he would respect that, right? When we talk to someone, we aren't just talking to like, you know, Patty or Jim or, you know, Siobhan or whoever, right? We're, we're talking to people who carry the image of God on their soul, right? They are uniquely and just inherently worthy of love and respect and dignity, no matter who they are, what choices they make, what they do, right? That's what part of that means. And the second thing I think Jesus understood is when he was like with someone, right? And as God, he had a perspective on each person he met that we often lack. Because Jesus kind of can look at all, the human race as a whole and kind of see and understand, you know what? Um, all humans, we kind of have the same problem, right? We all kind of have the same struggles with sin. We have the same kind of longing for love and acceptance and relationships. We have the same, right? Like Jesus didn't miss the forest for the trees. You know, he, he didn't get so zoomed in on the differences. Jesus is able to step back and appreciate, nope, nope. Everyone I'm ever locking eyeballs with is someone who, who I have far more in common with them as a human than I do, uh, do separately from them. Um, I looked up in the life of Jesus this week. Um, you can take the life of Jesus in, uh, in the biographies of his life in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that scholars, they kind of debate this. The number might fluctuate depending on who you ask. But basically, in the Bible, we have about 250 unique like stories of Jesus, right? So like, you know, we have 250 unique accounts of things that Jesus did over the course of his life that have been recorded for us. I looked all of those up this week. I actually looked up the list of 250 in my Bible and I just went like one by one and thought about it. And 34 of those 250 accounts of Jesus' life, that's 13% for those of you counting at home, 
34 of those 250 accounts were Jesus purposefully and intentionally going out of his way in order to make room for someone who was unlike him and was often unliked by people like him. Okay, 13% of Jesus' life was dedicated to that pursuit, to trying to make a point. Now, I don't know about you, okay? I don't know how much of my life I spend trying to purposefully and intentionally engage with the people around me, but I'm going to guess that's probably not 13% of my time. If we broke down every day of my life, like if, if my a day in my life has like 10 kind of mini episodes in it, you know, which would be, it'd be a really lame TV series. It'd be like, today, Wes made coffee, you know, or whatever, right? It wouldn't be very exciting. But if you broke down my life, I don't think 13% of my life would be dedicated to purposefully engaging with people who are different, like, different than me. But Jesus did it. And I think Jesus, again, if we want to be disciples of Jesus, or if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you're interested in learning about Jesus, and okay, if I was going to do this, like what would go into that? Part of what it means to apprentice ourselves to our master is that we would follow the words and the ways and the works of Jesus, right? That we would actually, we would actually do what Jesus did. And so as I kind of looked up those 34 stories and read through them over the past couple of weeks, I, there are a number of themes I found, but I've only got 35 minutes to talk to you. So I kind of had to distill them down to uh, three that I found that I think were interesting. Here's the first thing about Jesus' life. Jesus is always trying to push people to open their circle. Jesus is always trying to help people kind of, we all have a circle, right? The people that we allow to have proximity to us. And Jesus is always trying to open up that circle, okay? Just take, for instance, his disciples. Jesus had 12 disciples, okay? Two of his disciples, one guy was named Simon the Zealot, okay? Now, the Zealots were a political party back in the first century, and the Zealots were basically... Um, they were kind of like a first century terrorist organization, if we're being real here, okay? Because their goal was basically, they were sick and tired of the Roman Empire, and they wanted to overthrow Roman rule in Palestine. So they would do, th like, they would plot assassinations of key political leaders. They would do all kinds of stuff like that. Like, they were pretty violent. They're a pretty rough group of dudes, okay? These are guys that are not a big fan of the government, okay? They, these are the guys that, in the first century, they're driving around Palestine. They got their don't tread on me flag in the back of their car. You know, they probably have more AK-47s than people in their home, you know? Like, they're, like they, these are rough and ready kind of dudes, okay? And then, another one of Jesus' disciples is Matthew, Okay? Matthew's a tax collector. The way you became a tax collector is Rome would basically say, hey, we want someone to collect taxes at the corner of 5th and Monroe. Uh, so they would just open up bids for who wants to collect taxes from all the people that go by there. And the way you would win that post is you basically, you'd bid and say, well, I can do a million this year. And some would go, well, I can do 1.5 million. And you keep going back and forth. And Rome, of course, would just give out the tax collecting spot to whoever promised them the most money, right? And so the way you would get this position, like Matthew, is he basically said, hey, Rome, I promise you, I'll bring in five mil at the corner of 5th and Monroe this year. And Rome would say, cool, once we get our five million, you can just keep whatever else you get. So you can understand 
tax collectors are thinking, well, this is great, right? I'm going to hit my quota in like the first month of the year, and then I'm just going to take whatever else I get from people, right? They kind of had unilateral authority just to do and charge whatever they want, right? So Matthew has like sold his soul to the government in order to make a quick buck and extort people. Meanwhile, we got Simon over here ready to overthrow the government, okay? I guarantee you when the disciples had to do group work, Jesus paired those two guys together. I, I am 100% certain of that, right? And I'm sure there were some real interesting conversations that they had together, okay? Jesus, though, he didn't just try to open their circle like that way, okay? Jesus would do these things where he would, like, go places where all the disciples, like, their moms and dads told them, we don't go there, okay? It's so, like in John chapter 4, Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well, okay? The reason Jesus met this Samaritan woman at the well is because he went to Samaria, okay? Samaritans are a different race than Jews, right? They have some common ancestry, but they kind of hated each other. They despised each other, okay? And so Jesus has this interaction with this woman in John 4 because he goes to Samaria, okay? Any able-bodied Jewish person, if you had to travel somewhere, and keep in mind, Travel somewhere isn't, hey, I'm going to hop in my car and get on I-10 and drive just down the road. Travel somewhere is like, no, I'm going to walk these hot, dusty roads in the Palestinian sun where bandits and, and wild animals and like who knows what could happen on my travels, okay? If you had to travel somewhere, it could be quicker for you to go through Samaria. But if you were a Jewish person, you would walk around Samaria to get to your destination. You would literally add days to your journey just so you didn't have to come into contact with these people. Jesus takes his disciples right into Samaria. And I guarantee you the whole time they felt really uncomfortable. And I'll bet the whole time all the Samaritans are looking and they're going, what are these guys doing here? You know, like, like what well, you ain't from around here, partner. You know, like, I don't know, they were real southern speaking in uh, Samaria, apparently. And so they would go and they would be like, and this is just super uncomfortable, but Jesus is trying to expand the circle, okay? When Matthew, you know, I told you about him earlier, one of Jesus' disciples, when Matthew becomes a follower of Jesus, does anyone remember what the first thing that Jesus does with Matthew? Says, Matthew, we're going to have a big party at your house tonight, and I want you to invite all your friends to come and hang out. Well, the problem is Matthew is a tax collector, and because everyone hated tax collectors, guess who all of Matthew's other friends were? Tax collectors, right. So now Peter is probably over here thinking a good old Jewish boy. He spent all 30-some-odd years of his life avoiding tax collectors, and now he is here partying with them. And he's like, oh, my gosh, get your tax collector cooties away from me. I don't want to be a part of you. I, oh, my gosh, I hope no one takes a picture of this and posts it on Instagram. This is going to be really awkward when I have to explain to my sister, what in the world were you doing there, right? Jesus made this such a common practice. I just want you to see, Jesus quoted some of his critics, some of his haters in his ministry. And here's what Jesus said. He's quoting them and saying, the son of man, that's him talking about himself. The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, my haters all say, well, here is a glutton and a drunkard. And here was the real like, oh, this got him. A friend of tax collectors and sinners, right? Now, I need you to imagine, like we're getting ready to go in political season here, okay? 
I need you to imagine, this is like one of those political ads where it's like, Ron DeSantis, friend of tax collectors and sinners, you know, and there's like the red writing, you know, or whatever it is, you know, like it's got it on there, okay? Like this, is, that's what that was, right? This is how people would like be like, you don't want to be one of Jesus' people. He's a friend of tax collectors. You don't want to do that, right? Because Jesus was saying, hey, guess what? Tax collectors and sinners are just as much made in the image of God as saints, <laughs> saints and holy people, right? I'm here not just for the saints, but for the saints and the ain'ts, okay? Like, that's kind of who Jesus is here for. And Jesus is always, everything Jesus did, he is always trying to help people understand, hey, guys, the circle of people God loves is bigger than you think it is. And in fact, Jesus, one of the reasons that the religious leaders hated Jesus so much is he said to the religious leaders and to anyone who would listen, hey, you guys think because you're Jews you have special access to God? And I'm here to tell you this. God will take the most sinful-looking Gentile who believes in, in me, in God's son, over any good old Jewish boy or girl any day, right? Because God's circle is not just this particular group and this particular ethnicity and this particular, you know, whatever kind of people. God's heart is for all people. And, and they hated him for it because they, people could not understand, much like us today, let's be real, right? That God's heart is not just for the people like me, it's for the people who are unlike me too. Which leads to the second thing. Um, Jesus' practice of making room for others made people uncomfortable and angry, okay? Again, I promise you, when Jesus would lug his disciples wherever they went, they feel super uncomfortable. Um, this morning, while I was reading my Bible, I read the story of one time Jesus went to this place called the Gatherings, and he cast some demons out of the sky, and the demons went into a herd of pigs, and the pigs like ran off the cliffs, and they died, and everyone got angry. And here's something that we kind of miss. Jesus wasn't in, uh, in Palestine at that point. Jesus wasn't in Israel at that point. You know how I know? Because there were pigs around, right? Uh, that's kind of, I, I don't know anything about Judaism, but I do know pigs equal bad in Judaism, okay? You ain't supposed to be around pigs, right? Jesus, he wouldn't just take his disciples around places where like the Jews were or even where the Samaritans were, who are kind of distant ancestors of the Jews. He would take them where people had no concept of Judaism at all. People who didn't even know about Yahweh, the God of Israel. People who, who didn't worship a God, they worshiped gods, plural, right? Like all this kind of stuff. And I guarantee you when he would go to these places, his disciples felt real uncomfortable about it, okay? Jesus in Luke chapter 19, he meets a guy named Zacchaeus in the city of Jericho. Um, this is such a famous encounter. We've got a little song about it, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little, right? So you can sing that to yourself. If you grew up in church, we know who needs a support group now because you're singing that song to yourself the rest of the day. And so uh, Zacchaeus was this tiny short, he was like the first century version of Danny DeVito, okay? Like he was just teeny short. You know, I imagine he's kind of a round guy. He couldn't see over the crowd. So he, an adult man, this is just like it's always sunny in Philadelphia or something. He is climbing up a tree so he can get in the tree and see Jesus as he's just walking by, okay? And, and Jesus looks up and sees this little man standing in a tree, you know, like, what is going on? And he says, oh, this is my boy Zacchaeus. Yeah, I heard about you, Zacchaeus. Now, here's what you need to know about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. So, like, 
Matthew is bad, okay? Zacchaeus is Matthew's boss, okay? Zacchaeus has sold his soul even like more, right? To doing like all this bad stuff. Everyone in town would get real angry when they would see Mr. and Mrs. Zacchaeus' house and like, oh, I see Mrs. Zacchaeus got a new Lexus sitting in the parking lot. Oh, I see Mrs. Zacchaeus has added a new little addition. Oh, I see Mr. Zacchaeus is walking around with his Rolex and he's got his nice Italian leather shoes he's wearing, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? They would get really angry because they're like, that's my money that's paying for that, right? And so Zacchaeus is like super hated. And Jesus walks up to Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today for dinner. And here's the exact next thing that happens in the story. All the people saw this and they began to mutter. Now let me, anytime people are muttering, it's not, oh man, I'm so glad Zacchaeus has a friend now. You know, like, nope, that's not what the muttering is. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. He is gone to be Zac. He he is going to be Zacchaeus's friend. Oh my gosh! Right, and so all the people they hop on Twitter and they're sending their mean tweets, and we got like hashtag Zac Jesus, you know, and like all like you know, it's like leading leading the news, you know, it's trending topic, right? Because they just could not believe Jesus. How can you do this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because I'm not just here for people who are like me. I'm here to offer God's salvation and grace to people who are also unlike me. Because that's kind of what I do. Third thing Jesus did. Jesus also got angry at people and institutions that wouldn't make room for others. Okay, We see this in his teaching. We see this in his example. One such example. Okay, Jesus uh, one time was at the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple in Jerusalem uh, was a very, like, you know, stately building, a very official, and there are very clean lines that you did not cross, okay? So in the temple, there's what's called the most holy place. That was the place where the high priest could go once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. And then there was, like, the holy place, which is, like, if you were a priest or some sort of, like, religious professional, that's the place where I would hang out, okay? I'm kind of in there doing all the temple stuff, whatever, and outside of that was called the Court of the Israelites. You know, it's basically if you were Jewish, that's where you went to worship. That's where you, you know, sang the songs and you made your sacrifices and maybe you listened to a sermon and that kind of thing, you know, and you do all that there. Now, outside of there was what was called the Court of the Gentiles. And basically that was, if you were a non-Jewish person, this is as close as you can get to God. Like, and the Court of the Gentiles is basically kind of like, outside of kind of the main temple area. It was kind of in this large surrounding clearing. And that's where you would go and hang out. And in fact, if you are not a Jew, you were not permitted to go past a certain point. We actually dug up, uh, archaeologists have found like this huge stone sign where it's basically chiseled like, you know, Jews only do not cross, you know, at penalty of death or something. It's like uh, from Little Rascals, you know, like the keep out, you know, whatever kind of sign they put on there, okay? And so... This is the only place, if you're a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, where you can go to worship. And Jesus walks over to the temple one day, and he sees in the court of the Gentiles, where again, none of the Jews were, he sees all kinds of stuff going on. People are selling doves and birds. They're selling cattle and sheep and sacrificial animals. They're, you had to use a particular kind of currency when you went into the temple. So there are people that would like exchange your money for that. And basically, I kind of imagine if you ever watch like show, like travel shows or something, they go to someplace like Singapore or Indonesia, you know, and there's like the street markets where it's like 
everyone is just like crowded in right next to you. And it's like a ton of people and like, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. I imagine that was basically exactly what was happening. So if you're a non-Jewish person, if you're like me, right, you walk up thinking, I want to connect with God today, you know, and so you go up and you're trying to sit down to pray or do whatever you do there. And all of a sudden in the corner, you hear like, you know, you know, you hear like animal noises going, you know, and you hear people like, get your peanuts over here, get your peanuts, seven shekel, you know, like what, like it's just kind of like trying to pray and, and worship at a baseball game or something, you know, it's like trying to pray like in the middle of like the Florida State, Florida game or something like that, you know, like, like it's just not exactly a place where you'd want to worship. It's not a place where any person could connect to God. And this made Jesus mad. And so John tells us what Jesus did. Jesus made a whip out of cords. So he pre this wasn't like, hey, I just got hot and I walked in and I kind of did stuff, right? Like Jesus was like fuming as he's like making this whip from reeds and stuff like that. He made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, right? Like, could you, like, just imagine that, like, Someone was really angry at me and they just like walked in the back and they like took the sound cart and just like pushed you over, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Like this is like, Jesus is getting intense, but Jesus is getting intense for a purpose. He, he, he keeps going and he, he like says this, he says to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market, right? He is, he is fuming. He is angry. And why is Jesus angry? He's angry because the very institution God created to create space, to make room, to invite people who didn't know God to come and know and connect with a God who loved and created them because they weren't making room where that could happen. And Jesus said, this is so out of alignment with God's heart for the world that it would be better for us not to have a place to worship at all than for us to have a place to worship that doesn't make room for the people that God cares about and the people God loves. Here's the whole point of today, folks. Disciples of Jesus make room for the unlike and the unliked. Disciples of Jesus will make room for the unlike and the unliked, right? It's great if I surround myself with people like me that I love. That's, that's wonderful, that's nice, that's good. But disciples of Jesus aren't content just to settle with that. Disciples of Jesus make room for people in their lives that may not be like them. Now, you don't have to do this. But just know, if you don't do this, please don't wear the name disciple of Jesus. <laughs> because disciples live and pattern their lives after the master. And so... <laughs> I don't think there's any legitimate way I can say I am living as a disciple of Jesus and not living a life that makes room, not just for the people like me, but the people unlike me. Maybe even the people that are offensive in some way to me. Okay, now, when I say make room, here's what make room doesn't mean. Make room doesn't mean, oh my gosh, every person in the world is my best friend. And make room doesn't mean I don't have boundaries with people, okay? 
I would just direct you to look at some of the interactions Jesus had with religious leaders, right? Jesus wouldn't engage with the religious leaders for no point, right? When it was clear that they were just kind of engaging in bad faith conversation, you know, like they weren't really interested in, in getting to know Jesus or respecting Jesus, right? They were just trying to trick him or trap him or make fun of him or do whatever, right? Jesus said, hey, deuces, peace out. Like, I got, I got better stuff to do right now. But even in doing so, Jesus still kept the hand open, like, hey, if you guys are ever ready to engage in a real conversation, if you guys are ever ready to like engage in something true, right? Hey, my hand's open to that, right? Just read the story in uh, John chapter 3 of Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was part of the group of people that didn't like Jesus. And yet Nicodemus, like, he had some genuine true questions of Jesus. And Jesus, what does he do? He didn't say, hey, talk to my agent. No, Jesus said, hey, come on. Like, I'd love to chat with you, Nicodemus. Let's hang out. Let's talk. Let's do that, right? But Jesus, right, he, he had boundaries. He had boundaries in a way that still announced, hey, I'm, re I'm ready and willing to make room for you, even if you are not like me. And so I think the question then becomes, okay, so if Jesus makes room for people who are unlike him and unliked by people like him, okay, well, how do I make room? How, how do I follow in his example, right? And so I want to offer a couple suggestions on this, okay? How we can make room like the master. Here's, here's some of my ideas for us. Number one is we can choose to see people like Jesus did. Why I think Jesus made room was because Jesus looked at people differently than anyone else had ever looked at people. Okay? That Jesus, again, Jesus looked at every single person and saw them as someone created in the image of God. Right? He said, hey, I see that special something in you that we often miss because we get so focused on the differences. We don't focus on the fact that this is a person created, loved, and cherished by God. And here's the other thing I think Jesus did. I want to show you a picture, right? I think when Jesus looks at people, Jesus looks at them kind of like a picture of the earth from outer space, right? Now, right here, right, we're kind of seeing the bottom part of Africa, okay? Now, I'm, I, I very, I don't know practically the geography of like the areas where I live, so let alone a place where I don't live, like Central Africa, okay? But I'm willing to bet that if I went to, if I just parachuted into Central Africa, I probably wouldn't look at what was around me and go, man, this place looks just like Tallahassee, you know? Like, I'd probably find some differences. But what's kind of crazy is when I step back, why take a 30,000-foot view of the world, right? What's kind of crazy is, you know what? Central Africa don't look that different than the Middle East. And I'm willing to bet if we turned the globe around and looked at North America, it probably doesn't look that different from where we are right now. Right? Like, like when I zoom out, I actually realize, you know what? All these places around the earth, while they're different, they actually still have a lot of stuff that's the same. Right? That, that when I step back, a lot of it actually looks a lot the same. I have a new viewpoint. I can appreciate something I didn't see before. When we look at people, we get hung up on, 
oh my gosh, I can't believe that they have this different sexual orientation. I can't believe they have this different gender identity. I can't believe that they're black or white or Hispanic or Asian or whatever. You know, I can't believe that their family does this or their family doesn't do that. Oh yeah, they're Harvard educated. Oh, they have no education at all. Oh, they work in some menial blue collar job. Oh, they have like some fancy CEO, C-suite kind of thing, right? We get so focused on all the things that are different about us. Jesus looks at the human race and I think, yes, he appreciates, he sees, he understands the uniquenesses of each and every person and the uniquenesses of the struggles and challenges that all of us face in this room and those of you watching online and listening to this for posterity's sake, okay? But I think what Jesus looks at us, you know what I think he sees? I think he sees a human race in need of a savior. I think he sees sinners who might sin differently but have struggles just the same. I think he sees people who are trying to kind of plug the hole in their soul with stuff to find meaning and purpose, but they really need to plug into him to find it. And when I begin my viewpoint of other people like Jesus did, saying, hey, you know what? Even though I feel like I may share nothing in common with this person, here's what's true. That the core, we all have the same fears, we have the same desires, Many of us have the same weaknesses, very similar struggles. That we're actually maybe a lot more similar than we might think. And that when I begin to look at the people that God places in my path, especially the people in my path who are unlike me, instead of focusing on the differences, I focus on, in fact, the things about me and them that are very, very the same. I begin, to, I think, to see people the way that Jesus did. Second suggestion, I need to purposely put myself in the right environment. I've talked ad nauseum about this, so I won't bore you with it, but like, you know, hey, I have the flexibility to work from home, right? So one of the things that I do is usually once or twice during the week, I work from my McDonald's at the corner of Orange and uh, South Monroe, okay? And the first time I walked in there, I guarantee you every single person in that McDonald's is like, what is this guy doing here, you know? And in fact, I've had several conversations in the two or three years since I've adopted that as a practice where employees walk up to me and like, don't take this the wrong way, but like, why are you here right now? You know, like, which is a really interesting conversation, you know? But for me, that's like, hey, this is, if, this is what Jesus said, right? I want to I take the initiative. I want to take the lead in putting myself in an environment on a regular basis where I'm not surrounded just by people who are like me, right? That, that, that's important to me. If you have the ability to work from home, you have a very similar opportunity. Let me ask you some questions, right? When you, when you think of where you're going to live, when you lease an apartment, when you buy a house, whatever it is, do you give any thought to the community that surrounds you where you're doing that? Do you give any thought to the fact of like, hey, am I just going to be surrounded by more people like me? Or if I have the opportunity, and I understand, you know, all of us you know, have different means and opportunity, like, am I actually giving thought to the fact of, hey, I wonder if I could actually surround myself with some people who are different than me in some way? Like, that's the thing we have. Even simple little choices we make every day, like, Hey, which grocery store do I shop at? What library do I take my kids to? What park do we hang out at, right? These are all little tiny choices that we all have the power to make that, that decide, hey, what kind of environment am I placing myself in? And what's kind of crazy is we as humans have this unbelievable way of just kind of knowing how to self-sort one another, right? And that's not going to change unless I purposefully make decisions to place myself in the right environment. Some of you are already in the right environment by nature or where you work or what you, and that's great. That's awesome. But I don't think Jesus uh, 
purposely engaged with people unlike him on accident. I think he did it because he chose to, because he wanted to, because he wanted to model for us how we can join him in doing the same. Um, one of the things that was kind of interesting to me, that story of Zacchaeus, Jesus said this thing in Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 19. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, he's like inviting Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately from that tree, which I feel like if I had to say that to an adult man, I would be like, oh, wow, really trying to hold back some laughs here, Zacchaeus. And then Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. That word must is this, it's what we call a divine imperative, okay? When Jesus says, I must stay at your house, it's not Jesus going, oh, I must see your new kitchen remodel. Oh, I must see the new car you just got. Well, this, is Zac- this is Jesus saying to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, like, I have a deep conviction. Like, I have to be with you today. Like, like I would be disobedient to God if I did not do this, right? This is not Jesus saying, this sounds like a good idea. This is Jesus saying like, hey, Zacchaeus, I got to do this because this is the right thing for me to do, right? It's not on accident. He purposefully chose it. Here's a third way we can be like the master, and this is kind of hard for some of us. I understand. We need to accept being the catalyst, okay? I think everyone I talk to is interested in the idea of us being around people unlike us, The problem is, at least for myself, I'm not quite as interested in being the person that makes that happen, that exerts kind of the emotional energy to do that. And I think Jesus understood that, hey, if I'm going to do this in my life, I have to be the catalyst for it, right? I have to take the lead. I have to to be willing to make the first step, not knowing if someone's also going to make the first step toward me in return. And and he, he accepted that. Right? When we make the choice to kind of engage with people unlike us, we have to accept that, yeah, rejection can happen. It may not turn out the way I want. Right? We need to accept it's not just magically going to happen, because if it would, we, like, there wouldn't be any need for a sermon right, like this, right? Because it would just be happening already. Right? We need to accept that, hey, if this is going to happen, not that I need to force it, Not that I like barge my way in, right? But I need to accept that, hey, if someone's going to make a move that is a follower of Jesus, I need to follow in the footsteps of my master and be willing to make the first move. And if that's hard for you, that's where this last suggestion comes in. Um, We need to bring someone along. When Jesus sent out his disciples to like go, you know, do ministry and preach and cast out demons and do miracles and all this stuff that we read about in the Gospels, here's what's interesting. Um, Jesus could have covered, he had 72 people he sent out. He could have covered a lot more ground if he would have just sent out all 72 like one by, you know, like one time, right? You got 72 emissaries out there doing your thing. But Jesus didn't do that. He actually sent them out in pairs of two. Jesus actually cut his potential impact in half because he knew, hey, this is tough work. This is hard sledding. And we need someone to support us. We need to bring someone along if we're going to engage well, you know? This is something I feel like I do okay at in my life. But if I'm really honest, 
all of the major victories in my life have nothing to do with me and they have everything to do with the person who is married to me because she's the one that's like, oh, let's meet our neighbors. Oh, let's hang out with these kids. Oh, let's do this, that, you know, right? And I would just be still around here being like, man, I should really get to know those people, you know? And Brittany's like out at the pool being like, oh, here, have a, have a wine or I don't know, whatever it is you do. I, we drink by our pool, okay, judge away. Uh, anyway, and so like she does a great job at that, right? And so I just get to ride on her coattails and do that. But I think that's part of what the key is, you know? Like, hey, we need to bring someone along. And if you're not very good at this, if this isn't your jam, that's fine. I'll bet there's some people in your life where this is like, man, they are all about it, right? You need, to, you need to attach yourself to that person at your office. It's like the party person. They're like, hey, did you know that today is National Blue Jeans Day? We need to celebrate, you know, right? And they, like, have a cake and, like, they have streamer, you know, right? Like, like we all have people like that in our lives. And one of the keys that we can engage with is choosing to bring someone along to do this with us. Guys, making room for people who are unlike and unliked is exactly what Jesus did with us, Okay? I can't imagine whatever things that divide us and are different from us, I can't imagine there is a gulf or divide that is greater than the gulf that Jesus crossed when he, the perfect son of God who lived in heaven, decided, you know what, I'm going to have a change of address. And instead of, you know, 1600 Heaven Avenue, I'm going to move into, you know, one Bethlehem place, right? Like right in a, in a stable with smelly animals, right? And instead of being around perfect angels and all this stuff all the time, I'm going to be with people because we all know people are perfect and wonderful and always treat us nicely, you know, right? And I'm going to, I'm actually, I, I, as the son of God, right? I am so committed to the welfare and life of the people around me I'm going to give my life for them just so that the opportunity is open for us to make room at God's table for another person. When we make room at our table, whatever your table is, we are doing the very same thing Jesus has done for us. What Jesus has done for us has transformed lives and eternities ever since he did it 2,000 years ago. I believe when we make room at our table for others, we have the opportunity to be joining God in a transformational work in much the same vein. But it means we need to be willing to make room. Let me pray for us to make room. Lord Jesus, I pray for each of us listening to, hearing this message. Father, may we follow your heart to make room for others. Jesus, may we pursue and chase after you May we have your ways, your works, your rhythms become our ways, our works, our rhythms. And may we follow you in making room in this world as you have made room in your world for us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.